The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Coming up later in the show, travel to Mars. Now there's a way to get away from Donald Trump. Elon Musk, the billionaire who's co-founder of PayPal and Tesla, wants to build a colony on Mars. Katha Pollitt thinks that's not a good idea. Actually, she thinks it's a terrible idea, but one that tells us something about the world we live in. She'll explain later in the show. But first, democracy is not doing well these days, and so we turn to Astra Taylor. Chris Hayes describes her as a fascinating, unique, eccentric, brilliant person. She's a writer, she's a filmmaker, and she's an activist, and her latest film is What is Democracy? She writes for the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and The Nation, and she has a new book out now. The title is Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. The last time she was here, we talked about a student debt strike. Astor Taylor, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, democracy isn't doing well these days. Look, the, the Brits voted in favor of Brexit. Right-wing populist governments have been elected across Europe and in Brazil. In India, voters elected a fascist government headed by Modi. Who was it who warned that democracy devolved into tyranny? Well, that was Plato, right? Plato writing in The Republic, which is the foundational text of Western political philosophy. I like to call it the confounding text of the Western philosophical tradition because it's quite a strange text. But, you know, Plato does famously warn that democracy devolves into tyranny. And that got invoked a lot right after the election of Donald Trump. But I think it's important to um, actually, if we're going to invoke Plato, to to look at what he was responding to. And if, if we read the text closely, we see that he was actually responding to the problem of oligarchy. He said, when the uh, rich and the poor, when this divide grows between them, it breaks the city into two cities. You have the city of the rich and the city of the poor, and they they are in opposition. And so it's actually the rich wanting to get richer that sort of sets in motion the city breaking apart. And that speaks to our 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 problem today, right? A moment when three American billionaires hold as much wealth as the bottom half of the population and a handful of billionaires do the same globally for all of us on earth. So it's it's good though to go back to those foundational challenges, you know, of democracy, not that ancient Athens was a perfect democracy, but to just see that the problems of self-government have been with us for a long time and 
you know, there's there's something to be learned from from the past, even as we head into an unknown future. Well, your new book is organized around a series of paradoxes. You open by declaring that the history of democracy is a history of oppression, exploitation, demagoguery, dispossession, domination, and uh, abuse. Sounds pretty bad, but but it's also it's also what. It's also a history of cooperation, of fight for equality. It's the history of solidarity. And so the book is organized around these paradoxes in part to help me. So, you know, I'm not a professional academic. I don't have a PhD, but, you know, I, I love philosophy. A lot of my work has to do with philosophy. For the last eight years, I've been working as an organizer, working around issues of economic justice. So the student debt strike we launched in 2015 has won over a billion dollars for student debtors and is now formally part of Elizabeth Warren's platform, Bernie Sanders platform. So organizing has been my milieu. And, and what you realize as an organizer is that you know, democracy is really hard to do. It's very frustrating. You never perfectly get to reach your ideals. And so the, the book is me thinking through why democracy is so challenging. And so I think it has to do with the fact that it, is, it inherently involves these tensions. So each chapter is a paradox, freedom and equality, expertise and mass opinion, coercion and choice. And we have to hold these poles in tension. You can't just come on one side and say, okay, that's it. We're going to have freedom and we're going to sacrifice equality, or we're going to only care about the present and sacrifice the future. You can't do that. And so the book looks at how these tensions have been worked with, uh, how we have failed to balance them in the past. I try to use philosophy, uh, journalism, uh, you know, personal reflections to just give a, a different to put a different angle on democracy, to not not say it's just, you know, something we had in 2015 and now we're sliding away, but to say, no, it's actually this horizon we're constantly working towards, you know, progress moves forward, progress moves back. But democracy is is very challenging. It's worthwhile, but it's challenging. And, and my book is an attempt to think in a different way why that's so and, and hopefully to help other people stay committed to this frustrating process. Well, democracy in the United States today mostly means voting, and we worry that so many people don't bother to vote. You're one of the few writers I know who quotes Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in a well-ordered city, every man flies to the assemblies. Under a bad government, no one cares to stir a step to get to them. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, the largest segment of the electorate, right, are the people who didn't elect anyone, who didn't go to the polls, who didn't vote. I think we have to really ask, you know, multiple questions on this front. I mean, I think one big question is, well, is democracy reducible to just voting? I mean, a lot of people think democracy and elections are synonymous. And I think democracy is, has to be much more than elections. I think we need to democratize other spheres of life, the workplace, our education sector, the economy, all of these things. But, you know, elections are really important and people fought and died to expand the franchise. And, you know, it does say something very troubling that, that turnout's so low, but you know, turnout is low for multiple reasons. One, this country was founded on um, huge swaths of the population being denied suffrage rights. I mean, the right to vote is for all is not something that's in the Constitution in the United States. So outsiders had to fight for it, to fight for inclusion. And with every step forward, you know, there were obstacles put in the past, ways of engineering electoral dominance for the in-group so that even though there would be more voters, power could be maintained. So we have a situation with gerrymandering now in a state like North Carolina where Democrats can win the majority of votes but only get three out of 13 seats in the city legislature. So, you know, I think that, that the thing is that that has a 
effect. Uh, for the film, this, the book actually emerged uh, or sort of companions with a documentary I made called What is Democracy? And I asked people on the street, you know, what is democracy to you? And people didn't have very profound answers to that question or personal answers to that question because I think we don't do very much democracy in our lives, right? We're told democracy is election, so that's something you only do every four years or not at all. But what I found when I spoke to younger people who said, you know, no, I don't vote, was that they, it wasn't apathy alone um, that made them not want to vote. For example, these young men in Florida who, you know, were very cynical on the surface, it turned out that they had vivid memories of 2000 and the hanging chads and the fact that the Supreme Court, five votes, gave the election to George Bush, not Gore. So there, there was this sense of a kind of informed cynicism, informed apathy. And I think that's what we have to struggle against to say, yes, I know you're cynical, but that's because the struggle for even a democracy of one person, one vote is not over. And one person, one equally weighted vote is the next horizon that we need to reach for. I've heard that democracy and capitalism go together. Is this true? Well, that's what I was told. <laughs> that's what I was definitely told growing up. You know, I'm 39 years old, so that was what I heard through my 20s and the aughts. And, and it's something that I don't think is widely believed anymore, at least not among the younger generation, right? Polls show that young people, over now over 50%, would prefer to live in a socialist society than a capitalist one. And I think what they mean by that is that they'd like to live in a democratic society. They'd like to live in a society where they weren't having to go deeply into debt just to get an education, where they could actually go see a doctor, have the chance to retire, and therefore be able to have the free time citizenship requires. What I found uh, doing interviews for the the book and for the film was that actually there's a, a young young conservatives have picked the other side of the dichotomy. I think liberal young people are, are sort of getting a renewed interest in democracy. What I found talking to young conservatives is they were very cynical of democracy. They understood that democracy would mean mean the majority of people being able to live a decent life, and that would mean taxes being raised on the rich and privilege being shared. And so what I heard from people was actually, um, I'm talking 22-year-olds <laughs> in college saying, democracy is just a buzzword. Uh, you know, we need the Electoral College. We need the Senate, which is, you know, very unequal, representative system, unrepresentative system. Uh, and so I think we have a, a very interesting divide. We don't know where it's going to go, where this new generation splitting. And some people are embracing capitalism and some people are embracing democracy. I googled the question, why do capitalism and democracy go together? One of the first results was a link to an article in the Financial Times. I clicked on the link and got a page that said I had to subscribe to the Financial Times online. I had to pay them money to find out why capitalism and democracy go together. Yeah, that seems exactly it. I mean, I think that's to, to feel that they do. I think you have to have that economic baseline, right? I think what's interesting in this moment, you know, we often hear the threats of this moment phrase as one of populism, right? There's a kind of yeah. populist resurgence on the left and the right. And I, so I expected these young conservatives to be speaking about a sort of silent majority or actually, you know, we speak for the people. But what, what I heard was actually a, a much more old fashioned, classically elitist, you know, aristocratic thing of democracy is the unruly masses. The founding fathers were right to warn against democracy. We're a republic and we need controls on the people to maintain our status as the elite that we are entitled to be. Well, one of the best things you can say about democracy, at least in the United States, is that the Republicans are afraid of it. That, that's why they're working so hard to 
make it harder to vote, to gerrymander election districts, to change the way the census counts people. And uh, you're right, the founding fathers also distrusted democracy and created all kinds of obstacles to rule by the people. They called it separation of powers. And, of course, the Republicans today continue to try to expand that. Yeah, they do. And I think this is why people uh, of a more progressive inclination really need to think about the, the way democracy is structured. And, you know, I know for people who are a bit more radical, sometimes it can almost seem like this voting is not even worth much thought, right? But but in the book, there's a chapter on structure and spontaneity. And it's the fact that democracy, again, there's this tension, right? It needs to be these spontaneous moments of rebellion, of protest, but then we need to make rules. We need rulemaking. We need to sort of cement some of the insights of those more spontaneous expressions of, of, of democratic spirit. And so the rules of the game are, are really important. And, you know, Republicans are paying a lot of attention to them. That exact, That is exactly why they care about census questions, why they care about districts and how uh, votes are apportioned. And, um, and so what I would like to see progressives look at is not just how to make good on, on things like independent redistricting committees uh, to try to take, to try to rebalance the way districts are drawn at the state level, but to start thinking of more democratic ways of structuring our democracy. We have to remember the, the idea of one person, one vote, you know, only became part of American jurisprudence in the 60s with the civil rights movement. So I want to ask, you know, what's the next horizon? Can we fight for a more proportional system? Can we fight for ranked choice voting, which is gaining ground in states like Maine and in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, so that people aren't throwing away their votes when they want a different kind of candidate. Uh, could we use, the book looks and says, could we use sortition, which is a kind of random selection in order to find other ways of incorporating people from the from the populace into uh, structures of government? The ancient Greeks who, you know, we credit with being the first Democrats, whether or not they were, they, they, they were very clear on this. Aristotle said, Elections are aristocratic because the rich and the well-born, uh, sorry, and the uh, and the charismatic, we might say the reality TV stars, tend to win. And uh, selection, this kind of random process, is actually democratic. So that's how their society was governed for the most part. And um, we see citizens' assemblies randomly selected in places like Ireland today, making progress on issues like abortion rights. So, you know, we need to be creative. And that's the point. Democracy is not something... We, we already have and we need to perfect. It's something we need to create through imagination and through struggle. When you asked people what democracy meant, a lot of them said freedom. Isn't that kind of a problem? I think it is. I mean, I, I expected freedom. I mean, I think freedom can be a very beautiful, beautiful concept. And freedom is a concept that was developed by people who were enslaved, who were in, held in captivity. In fact, it was a, a concept according to the Harvard historian Orlando Peterson, that first came from women, because women were the first were the first slaves, actually. And so this is a concept that we hear in the civil rights movement, the, the desire for, for freedom, you know, freedom struggle. But it's also been, there's also a, a strand of thinking of freedom in a conservative vein that is not collective, but purely individual. There was a real attempt to equate freedom with the freedom to consume, with essentially shopping, <laughs> with uh, the American American dream being a sort of dream of this of the mall of the supermarket, uh, and equality, which is you know a necessary twin to freedom, has sort of fallen by the wayside. So I 
I was very surprised that nobody I spoke to said that democracy was equality. And I think that's a problem because at the heart of democracy is the idea that the people rule. And if it has, it has a lot of questions in it. Who are the people and how do, how do the people rule, right? That's open for debate. But the one, one of the few things that's sort of essential to it is that the people are equals, right? That we govern ourselves as equals. And so there's political equality and economic equality because of because if there's a huge divide between the rich and the poor, the rich are going to be more powerful and undermine that political equality at the center of democracy. And so I think we really need to put equality back at the center of our of our thinking, uh, of our public debates. And I, I think there are some encouraging signs that we're beginning to do that. But certainly equality has been the unloved twin. And I note, I note in the book the fact that there's all this propaganda for freedom, the Statue of Liberty, right? We don't really have the statue of equality. We don't, we talk about our civil liberties. <laughs> yes. We don't talk about our civil equalities. And I think we need to do some propagandizing for equality because it's a wonderful principle. Another way that democracy is defined is a system based on the consent of the governed. But consent, of course, can be, for instance, consenting to Trump can be based on ignorance or prejudice. Consent can be purchased. So what do you think of defining democracy as based on consent of the governed? I mean, I think that we have to look at things historically. And so this idea of consent of the governed was so profound when it emerged, because if you're living in feudalism or you're living under a monarch, it doesn't matter whether you consent or not. It's That's a question that's off the table. And so that's a radical, wonderful idea to say, no, actually, consent of the governed matters. And the ruling elite church and the monarchs feared this concept for good reason. The thing is that it's hard to anticipate how a concept can can evolve or can be co-opted. And so now what we have is a system where the idea is, okay, well, we're consenting to whatever job we, we happen to have, even if that's actually the only job that's available to us. So in a sense, there's this idea that we're consenting to our own exploitation we're giving our tacit consent to a government that doesn't represent us if we don't vote, for example. I think the problem with the emphasis on consent is, is essentially one of, of power relations. We have to understand that not every choice is a free choice, that some choices are forced because there's no alternative. When I'm choosing between my terrible private insurance options here in New York State, I don't really consider that to be much of a choice. I don't really feel like I'm consenting to have to pay $1,500 a month for my household to get health insurance, it's because there's no public option on on the table. So again, think about the power relations, but then also appreciate that that ideas that might seem limiting now were actually pretty liberatory when they developed. And let's try to devise some ideas that are liberating in this moment, you know, that might become status quo for the next generation. Last question. We've talked about the paradoxes and the problems and the obstacles to democracy. I wonder if when it comes to democracy, you agree with the famous motto of Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Well, you know, I end with that wonderful motto um, in, in the coda to the book. And it, it was a book that, how should I end this? How should I end this exploration of paradoxes? You know, I could have put aside my philosophical hat and written a little manifesto with, you know, 10 steps to renew democracy. And then I thought, you know, the thing is that in my own work as an activist, what I do is I have to balance my sort of hope and despair over the situation we're in, right? My optimism and my pessimism. And so, yes, you have to balance your hope and your despair as an activist. So as much as I 
respect Gramsci and I love his formulation that he's a pessimist of the intellect. He has pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I looked inside and I thought, I feel the opposite. I feel that my intellect gives me hope because when I look back on human history, people have struggled for justice against incredible odds, odds that are completely alien to me if I, if I take stock. I'm sitting here at my desk with my computer, communicating with my debt strike comrades over email and, and Twitter and stuff. It's like, who am I to say that all is lost? Yes, we have a climate crisis and the clock is ticking, but it just almost feels trite to be hopeless. And so, you know, it's my will that that often feels pessimistic. And so I think engaging our intellect, thinking philosophically about democracy, looking at history is actually immensely rewarding and opens these huge vein, veins of hope that uh, I think can propel us forward as we keep fighting for a, a democratic horizon that we'll never reach, but will hopefully benefit broader and broader numbers of people. Because the alternative is for dem democracy uh, to to decline, to wither away, to disappear, to maybe devolve into tyranny. And that's an unacceptable thing to acquiesce to. Astra Taylor, her wonderful new book is Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Thank you, Astra. Thank you for having me. Donald Trump has begun his re-election campaign. That, of course, raises the inevitable question, what should we do if he wins? One possibility, of course, is leave, go somewhere else, Canada, New Zealand, or how about Mars? Elon Musk, the billionaire co-founder of PayPal and Tesla, wants to build a colony on Mars. Is that a good way to escape from Donald Trump? For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, I know Elon Musk doesn't say his Mars travel plans are, are a response to Trump. What does he say is the reason he wants to go to Mars? He says some eventual extinction event will wipe out human life on Earth. But, I mean, it could be 100,000 years from now could be tomorrow. So he just wants to be ready, I guess. I, I understand. I understand that you are not the only one who thinks this is a terrible idea. You have been joined by the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. Katha Pollard and Jeff Bezos together at last. It's very funny because first Musk sets it up by saying, the first journey to Mars is going to be really dangerous. The risk of fatality will be high. There's just no way around it. It would be basically, are you prepared to die? And if that's okay, then you're a candidate for going. So that's irresistible, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then once you get there, it's work, 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 because Mars doesn't have anything. And so you kind of wonder why anybody would do this. And Jeff Bezos says, Mars is horrible. And then he says, this is so funny. My friends who want to move to Mars, and I'm, already I'm thinking, wait, you have friends who want to move to Mars? What am I missing here? Okay, he says, my friends who want to move to Mars, I say, do me a favor. Go live on the top of Mount Everest for a year first and see if you like it, because it's a guarded paradise compared to Mars. So his idea, and this is like even crazier than Mars, so saving humanity will mean living in these free-floating space pods. Now, why? Because if you stay on Earth, 
overpopulation and dwindling resources will mean population control and energy rationing. So because of these things, which don't sound all that terrible, he has to invent this whole new system. But at least you can have as many kids as you want because, and drive as fast as you want, I guess, <laughs> have a great big SUV, because you can have as many, they can keep building these space pods. And, and uh, Jeff Bezos is also in favor of having a lot of people living yeah, on space yeah. pods. Yeah, this is so weird. He likes the idea of a trillion human beings scattered throughout the solar system. And he says, we'd have a hundred Mozarts, and a, uh, sorry, a thousand Mozarts, and a thousand Einsteins. And I'm thinking, well, okay, but what if it's a thousand Donald Trumps and a thousand <laughs> Melanias, and what if you're stuck in a pod with one of them? It's just so crazy. I believe you point out in your new column for The Nation magazine that having a trillion people isn't necessarily the way to get people who are wise and heroic. In fact, there have been some small societies that did pretty well. Isn't that right? Well, yes. Look at ancient Athens. One brilliant guy after another, I'm sorry it was all guys, in a city-state with a population of about 250,000, and that's counting the women and the children and the slaves. So that's about the same as Lubbock, Texas. But but Lubbock, um, Texas has only given us George W. Bush. I've forgotten that. <laughs> well, he makes up for a lot, I think. I want to go back to Elon Musk here for a minute. I thought he was a good billionaire because his electric vehicles have made Tesla a more valuable company than General Motors, or at least it did for a little while. I checked today. Now Tesla is back to being number three behind Ford and GM. But at least Elon Musk is not one of those bad billionaires like Donald Trump who just, you know, screws his workers and doesn't pay his bills. Isn't that true? Well, um, electric cars, which is what Tesla's all about, that would really be great. Uh, once it becomes affordable and convenient. I, I mean, I do know some economists who think that Elon Musk belongs in jail for various things having to do with his stock, but I don't really understand what that is. But I think that the problem is you could be really good at designing a car. You can even be really good at, you know, SpaceX. I mean, that was a, you know, big thing. But privatizing space exploration is a pretty frivolous way to spend a humongous fortune. Think of all the money that Jeff Bezos has, and it doesn't occur to him, my God, you know, I could provide health care for everybody. I could have education for everybody. I could, I could make life so much better for millions of people. But no, I think I'll just have my space pod fantasy. But, but Jeff Bezos did buy the Washington Post and made it into a really good paper doing a lot of exposés on Trump. That was certainly a good way to spend his money. Yeah, and Louis the Fourteenth. You know, I mean, really, the furniture was great. Um, <laughs> this is more than uh, furniture, uh, of course. We I have <laughs> furniture is very important, John. I think your values are kind of strange here. No, all I'm saying is, if you're an immensely, immensely wealthy person, you can do some good things, but the bulk of what you're doing is maybe not so good. For example, take Jeff Bezos. He's got so much money, he could afford to pay his workers well. He could afford to let them, let them take bathroom breaks and not work so fast that their bodies are ruined after a couple of years in those warehouses. Why doesn't he think, well, I have enough money now, so now let me share it with the people who have helped make me so rich? 
Well, I have a counterexample of a billionaire who uh, maybe has done a better job, not as high profile, not as well known, Pierre Omidyar. He's the billionaire who founded eBay. He does not want to go to Mars. He does not want to live in a space pod. He's happy living on the beach in Hawaii with his wife and his three kids and giving his money to Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill for the intercept. Isn't that better than going to Mars? Yes, definitely is better than going to Mars. And anyone who'd rather go to Mars than Hawaii is really out of <laughs> And what about giving your money to Jeremy Scahill? Well, Jeremy Scahill, okay. I'm not so sure about Glenn Greenwald. But, but even that is better, is better than space pods. I should just say Jeremy Scahill, former colleague of ours at The Nation magazine, yeah. America's and, Oldest and Weekly. Right, and let's not forget Betsy Reed, former executive editor of The Nation, who is now you know, the top editor there at um, The Intercept. We have other billionaires who who do good things. Uh, let me just remind you of, of the, the liberal billionaires, Warren Buffett, the sage of Omaha, and Bill Gates campaign for higher taxes on the rich and give away a lot of their money. Michael Bloomberg spends his money on gun control, gay rights, and environmental advocacy. George Soros protects human That's rights right. around the world. Tom Steyer has spent hundreds of millions of dollars encouraging young people to vote. Aren't you glad we have such good billionaires? Well, it's nice to have good billionaires instead of evil billionaires. But I think the more important thing is that the whole way of sort of government by billionaire, having them set all the priorities, it's not good. It's not good because just because you're good at making a lot of money doesn't mean you're good at knowing how to spend it. And it would be much better to tax these people so that the democratic society we pretend to live in could decide what what actually contributes to the public good. So I've listed about half a dozen good billionaires. Uh, of course, there's a lot of billionaires who we don't really know what they uh, do politically because uh, they contribute dark money. And my guess is, you know, 95% of American billionaires probably support uh, the Republican Party and voted for Trump. I don't know. I think a lot of them certainly did vote for their fellow Fake billionaire, fake billionaire, fake, fake fellow billionaire. That's another Donald problem. Trump. But no, you think about it. I think charter schools. I mean, they fund the disease that their children have. But what about the disease that other people's children have? I think that it's always better to have more equality. Look, Carnegie. Carnegie spent his life screwing the working class, and he made a fortune. And then he built all these wonderful libraries. So that's really great. You know, that was a really good thing. But actually, that money. That money kind of belonged to the working class. It might have been better if he just gave that money back to them. You will notice that the Koch brothers don't want to move to outer space. They're perfectly happy to stay in Texas, and all they want is tax breaks for the rich and continuing government subsidies for oil and, and gas production. They are, they're very down-to-earth about the future. Right, and one of them, I forget whether it's Charles or David, one of them is very interested in the arts and has given a ton of money to the arts, and now there's, it's the David Koch Theater, the former New York State Theater at Lincoln Center, which says it all, doesn't it? Like, let's take the name of a government and social and political entity off the theater and put the name of the major donor onto the theater. And 
spent a lot of money redesigning the reflecting pool in front of the museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And but he's basically they basically do terrible, terrible things. And look at Shelley Adelson. I ask you, <laughs> no, I mean. How how could we forget about Sheldon Adelson? Yeah, yes. and his his apparently his wife is the richest person in Israel with a fortune of I forget whether it's twenty two billion dollars or two hundred and twenty billion. I think two hundred twenty two. Two hundred twenty billion is nothing these days. Oh, okay, okay. But no, this is not a good way to live. And if you look at the people that have historically been admired for their wisdom, it is not very rich people. It's people like. Socrates, who had no money, Diogenes, who didn't even have a house, Jesus, Buddha. Buddha was born a prince, and he gave up his money so that he could pursue enlightenment. That's a better way to be. Jesus and Buddha, you heard it here. I don't usually have nice things to say about (laughs) Jesus, but he's better than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Your your view is that the the people who made a billion dollars by founding PayPal or eBay or Amazon or Tesla, they claim that that proves that they're a lot smarter than we are, and therefore we should pay attention and to what they have to say. Doesn't this prove they're a lot smarter than we are? It certainly proves no. something. No, it doesn't prove they're smarter than we are, and it's not just about IQ smarts. I mean, they're probably all pretty intelligent and know a lot about their business. But that's not the same as knowing what makes people happy, what makes people good, what makes a good society. It's a completely different field of knowledge and information. Look at Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg decided that he wanted to help the schools in Newark, and he wasted like $100 million. He didn't improve the schools because he doesn't know anything about education, and he doesn't know anything about Newark. It was just... You know, what happens, you know what happens is people get the ear of these extremely rich people, some toady who knows the flavor of flattery that they want and knows how to get to them, and they follow that advice, and then they do something really stupid. I just feel that the qualities, the qualities that make you a good person and make you a wise person are very, very different than the qualities that make you a rich person. And that, of course, inevitably brings us back to Donald Trump. You hinted that perhaps he was not a billionaire, which, of course, was his main claim to why he should be president of the United States. Uh, The thing that was really, you know, that was stupid just on the face of it was when people said that the fact that before, you know, before the election, the fact that Donald Trump had a lot of money meant that he wouldn't be corrupt in office. Yeah. And this shows a real lack of understanding of human character, because the thing that is true about all these guys, and certainly true about Donald Trump, is there never is enough money. It's never enough. I don't know why that is. It's Whether it's, you know, competing for the best toys or some lack within or what, but, um, of course, Donald Trump has been incredibly corrupt in office. And, I mean, he's making money with his hotels all the time and having foreign diplomats stay there. I mean, it's a form of, practically a form of bribery. He's selling memberships to Mar-a-Lago to, you know, for hundreds of, uh, a great deal of money to all kinds of shady people. And um, the idea that just because he had a lot of money, he would be pure in office just shows how... I don't know. People just don't understand 
I don't know what to say. How could they believe something so stupid? <laughs> How could they believe something so stupid? Katha Pollitt wrote about zillionaires in Travel to Mars for her new column at The Nation. You can read it online at thenation.com now. Thank you, Katha. Always great to talk about zillionaires with you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Todd. Finally, Pramila Jayapal, the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus and representative from Washington State, is a lifelong organizer, and she's John Nichols' guest this week on the Next Left podcast. She came to the United States from India when she was 16. She was an early supporter of Bernie, and she drafted the Medicare for All legislation that's before the House now. The brilliant Pramila Jayapal this week with John Nichols on the Next Left podcast. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.